It's always a joy having you join us for worship. Also, if you need a uh, a, um, a note-taking card, should I say, a handout, please raise your hand, and the usher will make sure you get one. Uh, as you know, if you came in a little bit late, maybe you don't, but Bishop and his wife and his family are on vacation. They're taking a little time off. So we have a guest speaker with us today, somebody that we love dearly, somebody who's spoken in this house before, somebody who's a mentor to our bishop, and most importantly, somebody who is a blood-bought child of God and loves the church. Amen? I'd like to welcome Pete Alwinson. Thank you. Thank you. Was the worship awesome this morning, as usual? Am I going to sing with you or something? No. No. Yeah, no. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe seated. I guess that's what we're supposed to do right now, huh? Oh, my goodness. You know, it really is such a privilege to be with you and to worship with you uh, and to... Uh, Boy, I tell you, I thought I was ready to speak before I got here. I wasn't anywhere near ready to speak before I got. Now I'm ready to talk uh, and read to God's God's word with you and to look at it. But I, I love the pastors, the staff. I love your worship team, and guys, the guys in the worship team. When I get to heaven, I'm going to be able to sing like you. I can't do that now, but when I get to heaven, uh, and ladies, I hope I don't sing like you, but you sing beautifully. Uh, but uh, what wonderful time of worship, and I love your pastor. Uh, well, you have many pastors, and you've heard the gospel several times today, haven't you? You, you, you heard it, you heard it in, the, in the first round of singing that we did together, and then in that preparation for communion, that was one of the very best preparations for communion I've ever heard, brother. Thank you so much. Because he told us why Jesus came, what he did, and not to take lightly the work on the cross. And it's so easy to do that. And so we heard the gospel there. And then we heard it again afterwards in, the, in that second round of singing. I mean, it was awesome. You know, you know, unfortunately, I'm a Presbyterian for crying out loud. We need to learn from you more and more and more. Uh, how to worship, what a privilege it is to worship with you and to be with you and to look into God's word. And, uh, and you're in a series, I love this series, The Real Jesus. How many of you have been with us for a while, for several weeks as, as, as uh, Bishop Quinones has been doing this series in the Gospel of John? Good, so you, you've been in it, you've been walking through it. And I love the fact that the bishop understands the importance of preaching through books of the Bible. Yeah, and, and I'm astounded by the knowledge of the Word of God here in this church. It's, it's wonderful. But the reality is, is as you preach through books of the Bible, uh, we, are, we are led to talk about things, and the pastor is led to talk about things that he might not want to talk about. And that's why there's great value in preaching through books of the Bible. As the Apostle Paul said, I gave you, to the Ephesian elders, he said, I gave you the whole counsel of God. Not just parts of the counsel of God, the whole counsel of God. And when you preach through books of the Bible like that, you have to say what God puts there for our good, whether you want to or not. And we are benefiting from it so much. And so I really appreciate that he does that and that he understands the importance of preaching through books of the Bible. So he's assigned me a text. 
John 7, 32 through 52, he didn't say, Pete, what you like to preach on. He said, Pete, he said, Pete, this is what our text is, and I love that. And so this is our text for today that we're going to look at. You know, my friend, Pat Morley, some of you have heard that name. Pat Morley wrote a book entitled The Man in the Mirror. The Man in the Mirror, a great book to men because so many men have lost their way in following Christ. They're not following Christ. They think that, they think that following Christ is, is not for men. It might be for ladies. It might be for kids, but it's not for men. Pat Morley wrote a book saying, nah-uh. Because as the men understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, how it sets us free, we're able to help lead our families, as, as you've said so, so eloquently here today. Uh, but Pat Morley in his book, Man in the Mirror, said, at the very end, he said, you know, there is a God we want, and there is a God who is, and they're not the same God. He said, the turning point in our life was when we come to accept the God who is, and not the God we want. And in this series, in the Gospel of John, what we're seeing is that there is a Jesus we want, and there is a Jesus who is, and they're not the same Jesus. And the turning point in our life as we follow Jesus Christ is we understand we're going to accept him for who he is, not for what he want, we want him to be. So easy to try to make Jesus in our image, and when we do that, we get into trouble. And so in this text that I was assigned to preach, John 7, 32 through 52, we get to this point in the life of Christ where Christ is, is giving more and more of an awareness of who he really is. He wants us to understand him. Not, not from what we think he is, but for who he really is. And there's a growing impact of Jesus at this point in John chapter 7. So I'm going to read the text. It's a long one, 20 verses. Are you, amen. Here we go. Ready? John 7, 32 through 52. Remembering two things. I didn't pick this. It's a long text. I'm not going to put you to sleep. And remembering, number two, that this is God's holy word. You ready? Here we go. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, about Jesus. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Why does this man intend, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, I am, you cannot come? Well, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus has not been glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. 
the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is God's holy word, and I've got, I want to unpack this for you. A long text, a wonderful text. I'm so glad Bishop gave it to me to preach because it has three major components to it that are so important. The first, the first point is I want you to see the opposition to Jesus. Did you see that in the text? We see the growing opposition to Jesus in this text. And in verse 32, it says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things. What does muttering sound like? Mm-hmm, yeah, exactly, exactly. When you go back a little earlier in chapter 7, you see that they were muttering, uh, the crowds in Israel, and this is really kind of a nationwide thing, they were, some of them were saying, go, go back to 7 verse around 12, some were saying, he's a good man. And others were saying, no, he's a bad guy. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders of Israel, were really getting upset because Jesus was messing up their life. We don't often think of it this way, but Jesus was a great disruptor to the religious way of getting right with God by trying to obey the law, by trying to do it ourselves. Uh, that's what the Jews were trying to do. And Jesus was disrupting all of that. And so they finally catch this when they sent the officers out. Notice that they'd already written, uh, gotten a legal warrant for his arrest. It was all legal, and they sent the officers out to get him. So, so this is, this is they, were, they were finally done with, with what Jesus was doing. And there's no doubt, catch this, that Jesus frustrated the Pharisees every day of his earthly ministry. Every day. And even before that, I was thinking about this the other day, even before Jesus began his ministry, he was frustrating the religious leaders through John the Baptist. Right? Right? When John the Baptist was at the, a down baptizing people, what was he saying to them? Do you remember? He was calling them to repentance and, and saying, be baptized for the remission of your sins. He's saying, you guys need to turn from the way you're living. And what did he say to, to do? Did he say, turn to the Pharisees? Did he say, turn to the law? Not really. Did he say, go back to the temple and follow the regulations in the temple? No. What John the Baptist was saying was, I'm nothing. But after me is going to come somebody whose sandal, I can't, I, I'm not even worthy to tie. You follow him. And so, and so even through John the Baptist, Jesus was frustrating the apostles, the, the, the Pharisees, and the leaders. And then, and then when John the Baptist saw Jesus the first time, what did he say? He said, behold, huh? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, there he is. He didn't say, see, the Pharisees didn't even do that kind of stuff. 
They didn't say, look to me, I'm the lamb. I take away this. They said, look at the temple because on the altar of sacrifice, that's where your sins take away. John looked at Jesus and he said, he's the one. He's the one. He's the one. He's the only one. We sang that this morning, didn't we? Freedom, freedom, freedom. Where's that come from? And I love, again, how you did this. You rooted it all in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because it's in his blood where we get this freedom. And that's what John the Baptist was pointing to. Well, let me give you a quick survey of John. Of John. Are you ready? Okay. I mean, Bishop's already taught this, so this is all, new. This is all you remember all this stuff. But I want, I want you to know how much he frustrated, Jesus frustrated those guys. John 2. At the wedding, we see Jesus turning water into wine. All right, now when he did that, what, did, what was the water in? What kind of stone pots were those in? What were they? Do you remember? They were, they were Jewish purification pots. I mean, these big things, probably about this high, maybe a little bit higher. They were used for religious purposes that the Jew would wash themselves and, and be cleansed. Now, when Jesus turned the water in the purification stone, uh, stone uh, goblets, big goblets, into wine, what was he saying? That was a major statement. He was saying these, these purification Pots speak of me. I am the one that's going to fulfill. I've turned it into wine because I'm going to tell you that, that I'm the one that can purify you. I'm the only one that can purify you. That, do you think some Pharisees might have been at that wedding? I think so. And they probably were a little frustrated. Jesus, is, is tur- he's misusing these water pots. Huh? Turn it, Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of that. John chapter 2, again, he turns the tables upside down in the temple, right? Yet gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Nice, sweet little Jesus, right? Uh, no, he was frustrating the, 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 the Pharisees and the leaders. John chapter 3, he says that for a person to get to heaven, you must be born again. Not, not like the Pharisees would say, you must keep the law. No, he said you must be born again. Jesus was pointing to himself and not. He must be born from above. And, and how is that done? It's done by the waters. It's done by the Spirit. It's the supernatural work of God. The Pharisees hated that. John chapter 4. I love this. Jesus sat down at the well with a Samaritan woman. Talked to her, number one. Number two, his disciples came back and they were, so, they were shocked. Because how do Jews feel about Samaritans? Can we talk? No, they didn't talk. They didn't like them. They didn't love them. They said they were half-breeds. They, they, were, they, they would make you unclean. And so Jesus is talking to them. Why? Because Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter. For God so loved the world. Samaritan, I remember one time I was talking to a guy. He didn't know me very well. And he said, okay, what's your ethnicity? What's your background? I said, well, I got a quarter of Venezuelan in me. I got a quarter Norwegian, and the rest is mixed up with Irish and Welsh, and, and he goes, oh, so you're a mutt. And I said, I didn't feel real good about that. But I said, yeah, I guess so. And I felt a little discriminated against. Have you ever felt that? Mm. Jesus says none of that. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter because in Christ, in me, you're whole. You're mine. You're clean. Wow. 
John 5. It's in church, synagogue, Saturday, and there's a sick guy, and what does Jesus do? He heals him. Now, there are Pharisees there. He know, now, now, if somebody got healed here, would that be a good thing on Sunday? Yeah, in, in a synagogue, the Jews said it would be a bad thing because Jesus, if he healed on the Sabbath, he would be what? Working. And therefore violating the Sabbath. Jesus looks over, sees the Pharisees, sees the sick guy and says, all right, it's time. And he heals him knowing that that would garner controversy. You understand that, don't you? That what Jesus is trying to do, and the bishop has already taught you this, and in uh, and, and the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Not, you got to go to the law. He says, I'm it. Have you ever, at this point, Jesus has frustrated the Pharisees over and over and over and over so that they are done with him. You ever said that? You had a bad day with the kids? I am done with them. Now, are you really done? No, 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 no. You got them until you're 18. That's, uh, I mean, they're 18. You got them until they're 18. You're not done with them. And then you're still their parents, right? You want to be done, but you're not done. The Pharisees wanted to be done with Jesus, but were they done with him? They wanted him dead. They wanted him in prison. They wanted him out of their hair. By the way, moms and dads, when your little boys are running around tearing everything up, and they're as difficult to deal with as you could ever imagine, don't say, I wish you were like Jesus. <laughs> Are you getting what I'm saying? Because Jesus was the great disruptor. He was, he was not always gentle. He was not always sweet. And he was not always kind. He was a lion. He's the lion of Judah. And if he didn't come in and do the work of disruption, we'd be in trouble. He was headed to the cross. Knowing that they were out to arrest him, Jesus says in verses 33 through 36, he says, I'm with you a little while longer, and then you won't see me. I'm going where you cannot come. And that threw everybody into chaos. They didn't know what he was talking about. What Jesus is saying is here, the leaders of Israel want me dead, don't they? They want me out of the way. Uh, in a little while, I'm going home. I'm going to the one who sent me. Uh, and then, well, in John 14, what it? What is it that Jesus says in John 14? Well, you haven't gotten there yet. But in, in John 14, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. When I, when I, when I, I will come back and take you to be with me, that where I am, there you may be also. Here, he says, where I'm going, you cannot come he was speaking to the, the unbelieving crowd. Later to his disciples, he says, where I'm going, you can come. But first I have to go to the cross. You can be with me. You will be with me. But only after I've done my work, the death, burial, and resurrection. And that's so important for us to bring and keep in mind. What is Jesus doing? He's pointing to the cross. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Catch this. I love this. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says in John 10, 18. No one takes it from me. The Pharisees wanted to take his life, didn't they? They wanted to put him. But Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. Because I'm doing this for you. Oh, how he loves we sang about it 
We've been there today already. We felt that. And this is the truth he's saying. Let me, let me give you a truth. There is nobody who's ever been more willing to die for you than Jesus. Nobody. There never has been. There never will be. Jesus was ready and willing. He was born to die. And brothers and sisters, uh, what we have to understand is that this text, even though it's a historical text about the opposition that Jesus faced, it's so important for us to keep in mind. Don't just view this as history. Understand that that this text on the opposition, the growing opposition of Jesus that we see in John chapter 7 is powerful because it's, 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 a, it's an illustration of all of our life until Jesus Christ comes back. There will be opposition. And there will be opposition to you and to me precisely because we name the name of Christ. Jesus is the great dividing person of all history. He is the great hope of all history, but he is the dividing line of all history. And what's important for us to understand in this text is that the, we prayed before church, didn't we, for some of the rebellious people. Some of the rebellious, not all of them. They're always going to be there. They're always going to be there, and there's always going to be people that don't like you. And the only reason they don't like you is because you love Jesus. And, and this is so important for us to keep in mind. They called Jesus everything. I made a list. They called him in his lifetime. They said he was demon-possessed. I've been a pastor for 30 years, and I've never been called demon-possessed. I've been called a lot of things. <laughs> demon-possessed, a Sabbath-breaker, one who blasphemes God's name, a deceiver, a Samaritan. They even said Jesus was crazy. I've had some people say that about me. And the reality is, is that people oppose Christians because you stand for Christ. They're persecuting the, uh, the Christians in Iraq and Iran. ISIS is killing them. Christi uh, in China, you know that in China, they're ink. We hear that everything's hunky-dory, wonderful in China. It's not. A new round of oppression is taking place against Christians in China. At some point, China may be the most Christianized nation on the planet. The gospel's spreading, but they're still being persecuted still being persecuted. We should expect it. Don't, guys, this opposition to Jesus is so powerful to us because we need to expect it. Don't ever say when somebody makes fun of you because you're a Christian or they don't like you because you're a Christian or you lose your job because you're a Christian. Don't ever be surprised. Don't say, I'm shocked at this. Why? Jesus said, if they did it to you, they'll do it. Did it to me, they'll do it to you. So there's a very real sense in that this text is so powerful for us because we see not only the growing opposition against Jesus, but it serves for us as a reality check about what we will face until he comes back again. And uh, isn't it amazing that he came in the first place knowing uh, how people would reject him? He, he came knowing all of that. That's called grace. It's called mercy. And we've sung about it. That's so powerful. So I want you to see in this fast-moving text, I want you to see the opposition to Jesus. Secondly, I want you to understand and catch with me the self-identification of Jesus. Now, it's one thing for me to tell you about Jesus. It's another thing for Jesus to tell us about himself, isn't it? And so what he does in this text, verses 37 through 39, is he makes, his own, he makes himself more clear to other people. In a sense... At this point in Jesus' ministry in John chapter 7, remember the times in the past where he said he's healed people and said, don't tell them I did it? Yeah, just keep this on the down low. 
Jesus is now at a point in his ministry where it's getting on the very up front. Very in your face. You're going to see it in just a minute. But in verse 37, he says, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. I'm going to read all these verses again. Not, not all 20 of them, just these. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about who? What? About the Holy Spirit. Um, whom those who believed in him were to receive, as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not glorified. This is not saying that the Holy Spirit hadn't been working. It's just saying that the Holy Spirit had not been given as a permanent possession to believers at this point because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ hadn't happened. But did you notice what happened on verse 37? Jesus is at his disruptive best. It's the last greatest day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was a seven-day feast, and then on the eighth day, this was the eighth day, the last and greatest day of the feast, uh, Jesus, they're in the middle of the church. How many people are there? I don't know. There are probably hundreds, thousands around the temple. There's a big worship service going on. Somebody's probably speaking, and Jesus, or there was a lull, and Jesus stands up. Now, you notice I was pretty nice sitting here in the front row during the worship service. I mean, I'm just, I love this. I, I, I didn't interrupt, did I? Can you, and thank God that you didn't because the pastors would have taken me out of here. Jesus stands up. Look what it says in the text. It says in the text that he cries out. Can you picture can you picture the Feast of the Tabernacles? And Jesus cries, I didn't say, hey guys, can I talk? <laughs> can I have the floor? Can somebody hand me the mic? He stands up. If anyone's thirsty, then come to me and drink. That's why later the officers would go back and say, no one speaks like this man. Because when Jesus spoke, the crowds listened. They could do no other. Jesus didn't come to this feast until halfway through it, and at the very end, he interrupts it. Feast of the Tabernacles. You remember what that is? Feast of the Tabernacles, or booths. It, it, it celebrated the harvest that had just taken place, um, and, and so they were celebrating that God had given them a good harvest. Now they had enough food. They're going to be doing all right, but it also celebrated the fact that the God... God got them out of Egyptian bondage. And in that 40 years of wandering, what did they sleep in out in the deserts? Um, tents. They didn't have any North Face tents back then, or Coleman tents. So they made, they made temporary little booths or tabernacles, or they'd take branches and, and, and they'd live in them. And, and so every year at the Feast of the Tabernacles, that went on for seven days. Um, and the people were living out. The kids probably loved it. Hey, we get to sleep outside. Moms and dads hated it. There was no air conditioning. There was nothing going on out there. And so, but, but in the Feast of the Tabernacles, they came and they also worshiped every day. And so they would celebrate it. And the Feast of the Tabernacles was a powerful, powerful time. For 40 years, they'd been wandering and now they didn't. You just need to know what goes on every day. Every day in that worship, in the Feast of Tabernacles, the high priest, the whole worship team 
would gather behind the high priest and they would march to the Pool of Siloam. How many have heard of the Pool of Siloam? It's in Jerusalem. You've, you've heard it read before. You look in your maps at the back of your Bible, you'll see it there. It's south of the temple area and down a little bit low. They would all march down there and the high priest would take a big golden pitcher and dip it in the Pool of Siloam. And then they'd come walking back in procession and they'd take that water and they'd come up to the temple. That's not any, if you've been to Israel, uh, it's not an easy walk up that hill up to the, because the temple's up on the mountain there, you know, so they got to climb up there and they're all procession. They're singing. The choir is singing psalms, uh, the Hillel psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. And as soon as they got uh, to, the, to the, just right near the altar, you remember the altar where they did the sacrifices? Can you picture the altar? Can you picture something that is from about here to say here, a big charcoal fire going where they offered the animal sacrifices. It was hot and glowing. And they'd offer, they haven't offered the morning sacrifice yet. And so the high priest and all those guys would come up and they would come up and they'd get right up close to that big altar where they did all the sacrifices. And then the men, ladies, you didn't get to do this for some reason, I don't know. Uh, you, you'd, the men would, well, they would all shout out at one time. They would all shout, shout out, give thanks to the Lord. Three times. There'd be a horn blow, loud blast, and then the whole congregation would say, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. Let, let, let's do that. Wait, wait, first, I want you to get the... What you got in your right hand is a branch. Willow, myrtle, wrapped with a palm. Indicating the, the tabernacle that you had to sleep in. And in your, in your left hand was a citrus fruit. We're going to have a little participation. All right. Raise your right hand. You ready? In your right hand, you got the branches. Now lift that fruit in your left hand. You ready? Three times, give thanks to the Lord. Ready? One, two, three. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Awesome. They would do that every day for seven days. And then the high priest would take that big jug of water and that golden chalice, and he'd come up and he'd pour it on the altar. Now, the hot altar would do what? When you pour water on a hot altar, what would it do? Steam, like crazy steam. They also poured wine on it too, symbolic of the fruit that God had given them out of the ground. And, and the steam would rise to heaven. And then they would go to worship. Seven days, that's what took place. And on the last great day of the feast, Jesus stands up. And he says, you know that water that you poured out? I am the water. I am the living water. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If anyone is hurt, let him come to me and drink. He's saying, what he's saying here is that the feast of the tabernacles that talked about the future that God would provide Israel. Did he protect them in the wilderness? Let me ask you this. For 40 years, did he protect Israel? Yeah, what did he give them to eat? What's it called? Manna, manna burgers, manna patties, manna waffles. But it's better than nothing, right? I haven't seen a carb I didn't like, and so they had manna. Did they get water? Yeah, sometimes they got it out of a rock. 
And sometimes they came upon a, a, a lake that was, that was bitter. And what did God do? He made it drinkable. Did God take care of them in the wilderness? The Feast of the Tabernacles is, is a prophecy in a sense that says, listen, just as God took care of us in the wilderness, God will take care of us in the Messianic age when the Messiah comes. He's going to provide for us. He's going to provide for us. And Jesus stands up and he says, he has. God has provided. It is fulfilled in your presence right now. If you're thirsty, you come to me and you drink. I, you know, we, we've come to him and we have drunk of the living water, haven't we? But how easy it is for us to still run after other things. How easy it is for sometimes for me to run after, I, I want success, or I, I want this, this thing, or I, I want this. Jesus says you can run after all those things. You can go after all of those things that, you, that, that are idols to you that you think will fulfill you and, br and bring you great joy and depth and meaning. You can have all of those things and they won't do it like I can do it. If you're thirsty, you ever get thirsty? Yeah, in Florida. But I get metaphorically thirsty all the time. I get metaphorically hungry all the time, and I want to fulfill the thirst. I want to fulfill the hunger by going after other things. And God says, son, come home. Come to me. Run to me. Because that thing isn't going to do it. But I will. I'll satisfy you. Um, and the Pharisees didn't say stuff like this. They thought Jesus was crazy. But we know he's the Lord because the tomb is empty. A dead man got up and walked. He is the living water. Here's a challenge for us to remember that as we follow Jesus, to understand that he is our living water, not to run after those other things. But the amazing thing is, is as we run after Jesus for salvation, but always, right? Do we need the gospel one time to become a Christian? Yes. Do we need the gospel every day to remember that he is the living water? I need it every day. I wake up and I got to preach the gospel to myself lest I become discouraged. But here's the amazing thing. When I run to the living water, then he fills me up and I have something to offer somebody else. Notice what he says. Out of you will flow rivers of living water. You try to do good for other people and you can't do it unless you get filled first. Right? I, a friend of mine was telling me the other day, he's a hard-charging guy that works out outside. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a tradesman. We were digging a trench together. I know, it doesn't look like, I, I was sweating buckets. I drank a gallon of water within two hours. We were sweating so much outside. I was talking about being thirsty. Then he told me, he said, you know, I called my sister-in-law up the other day. She's, uh, he's about 50-something and she's about 30-something. And she has the mentality of a 12 or 13-year-old. She's just mentally deficient and always has been. And she had to go through major surgery. He called her up and he said, he said, do you want me to pray for you before your surgery? And she's giggled over the phone. She said, of course I do. This rough and tumble guy praying for this helpless sister-in-law is. See, he'd been filled up. And he had something to give. 
And it wasn't, it was, it was a good work. Jesus says that's what's going to happen. The self-identification of Jesus is so powerful. Lastly, short, shorter, much shorter. I want you to note the growing clarity about Jesus. Because as we look at this text, we see it move to that next step where Jesus, who stands up in the feast and said, if anybody's thirsty, come to me. Then those guys, well, look, look at what it says, verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? And, and then they go on. You see, some people said he's the prophet. Do you remember the prophet in Deuteronomy 18? Moses said that God said to there become a prophet greater than Moses who will come. So the Israelites were looking for a prophet greater than Moses, and they thought it was Jesus. And then, then they were looking for the Messiah, the anointed one from Isaiah. Jesus is both of them. He's the prophet from the Old Testament. He's, he's the prophet, priest, and king. He is all of that. He is everything. They're right. And then some people will say, well, wait a minute. Jesus came from Galilee up in the north. We thought he was supposed to come from Bethlehem in, 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 in the city of David. These guys didn't even know Jesus. They didn't know that he, in fact, had come from Bethlehem. They didn't know it because they didn't know Jesus. But there was a growing clarity about Jesus. By many people, they understood who he was. Some struggled, uh, some questioned him, but they did, there was, I love the text, it says, there was division over Jesus. Jesus makes very clear who he is. The son of God, the savior of sinners, he's the only one that can produce that which can quench our thirst in life. What do we do? We tell other people about Jesus. Can we quench their thirst? Can we satisfy the need of other people? No, but we can lead them to Jesus. We can help people get a more clear view of Jesus. Partly one of the things I try to do is just get people who, who are my opponents, who don't like what I'm talking about or what I'm about, I try to get them just to read the Gospel of John. I try to get them to read Jesus. I try to talk to them about Jesus. Why? Because when you, when you read Jesus, you go, whoa. No one else is like this. And Jesus is his own best evangelist, isn't he? And so one of the things that we can do that we see here is that we can get people uh, committed to him by, by introducing them to him, not trying to answer all of their issues, all of their questions. But sometimes they do come at us. They say, you Christians, you Christians are hypocrites. Are we sometimes? You Christians are playing a game, a spiritual game. Are we sometimes? Sometimes, not all the time. You guys are really sinners, are we? Sinner saints. Yeah. I, 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 I'm going to pass the mic and let everybody confess their sin of the day. No. But do we sin? Jesus paid for our sins, past, present, and future. We're going to sin. That's a reality. And so sometimes we get criticism from people who say, you Christians are just a bunch of sinners. Answer, Yeah but forgiven sinners. And what the world needs to hear from us is not that everything is perfect all the time and we're perfect all the time because we're not. And they know it. But what we need to do is point them to Jesus who is 
perfect all the time. He is the answer. You, you've seen this in the, in the media. Uh, he was a, a very famous, and he is still famous, evangelist, pastor, teacher, author, who fell into sin recently. Came to my church when, uh, when he was in seminary. Uh, you would know his name if I said it. I'm not going to say it. But it's been, it's been horrible, the fallout. Ministries have had to be shut down. He's disappointed so many other people. One of his friends wrote a blog and said, you know, you know what, um, what he did only proves the gospel message. That we're sinners and that we need a savior. Not that what he did was okay, it wasn't okay, but, but, but this is why Jesus came. And so in a very real sense, what you and I are doing is not drawing people to ourselves by, we're trying to live a good life, aren't we? We're trying to live an obedient life. I am, you are, we're trying to, but we will fail. So we can't keep drawing them just to us, we have to draw them to the one who will satisfy their thirst. Jesus Christ. And that's such an important point for us. And then for us, it is, it, is, it is significant for us to remember there is a Jesus we want and there is a Jesus who is. And he is not the same Jesus. And the turning point in our life comes when we, when we grasp the Jesus who is, not the Jesus we want. This is the Jesus who is. The real Jesus is the one we really want. And so when we get empty, run to him. When, when, when he doesn't do whatever you want him to do, run to him. When you're hurt, when you're disappointed, when I'm disappointed, I try to run to him, not try to fix everything, because I try to fix everything. But he says, if anybody's thirsty, come to me and drink. But don't forget what we sang earlier. Oh, how he loves you and me. The cross proves it. Run to him. Run to him no matter what. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for your goodness, your deep love for us, the opposition that Jesus faced, the opposition that we will face, but the clarity of who you are, Lord Jesus. Literally, God come in the flesh, our Savior. Oh, Lord, that others would know you, that we would know you in a deep way. That through this wonderful church, more people right around here, all over the city, would come to know how good you really are. May they come to know Jesus, whom to know is life eternal. And we pray these things, starting a new week, in the strong name of our risen Savior Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen.